we're going to look at Exodus and and not through the lens of history as much as looking at it and asking God why. Anybody hate that question out of the mouth of a five-year-old? Why? Why? We, we can get that question 500 times a day in our house. And I want you to understand that God does not get tired of us asking why. Why, why is this particular detail in the scripture? Why, why is it there? And uh, the, the why of the first parts of Exodus, and we're going to go through chapters one and two today. The why of the why that I had as I read through it is why is there such an emphasis on so many names? And it was something I never picked up on reading through it before, but God cares about names. And I've said that to you before, and I've broke down names different places with you. But I want you to understand that we're leading up to, and here's a spoiler alert for the next message in this series, that God cares about his name. And uh, it's going to be really neat when we get there, but I'm not going to spoil it anymore. But part one of Exodus is what's in a name. And in Exodus chapter one, it says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all descendants of Jacob, who were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Okay, there's a whole lot of names. Why, why does Moses, who we believe wrote the Exodus, why does Moses spend all the time to go through all these names? And, and then if you start to look at the names, there, there's some stuff here. Okay, Reuben's name means behold a son. Simeon means heard. Levi, joined to. Judah, praised. Issachar, there is recompense. Zebulun, exalted. Benjamin, son of the right hand. Dan, a judge. Naphtali, wrestling. Gad, troop. Asher, happy. And Joseph means Jehovah has added. And I'm not telling you this is intentionally put in here as prophetic. But if you begin to look at this, behold, a son heard. And he was joined to and praised, understanding that there is recompense. He's exalted, the son of the right hand, a judge, wrestling with a troop. He's happy because Jehovah has added. Okay, now if you start to put more words into it, is this not telling the story of Jesus clear back in Exodus? Behold a son. God heard the cry of mankind and he joined himself to them through their praise. And there's recompense for the sin that they committed because he is exalted, the son of the right hand, who is a judge. 
And wrestling with a troop. Wrestling with a troop. Can you get a picture in your mind better of the children of Israel and of the church than wrestling a troop? Because does anybody else struggle with God? Or am I alone? I struggle with him. I wrestle with God a lot. Maybe it's because my name's Jacob. I'm just praying he doesn't break my hip. But the, the wrestling and the struggle makes him happy. And Jehovah has added them to the family. What a, what a powerful little genealogy that's tucked right there. And you can't tell me as we go further that God doesn't care about names because the names are going to help tell the story. The other thing that I drew from that is everyone matters. Because of Genesis, we know that some of those brothers were absolute knuckleheads. Some of those brothers were kind of written out of the will by Jacob. But they still get listed by Moses because even on your worst day, you still matter to the family of God. Doesn't matter what your sin is. The, the struggle of the American church is we get labeled as judgmental and hypocritical because we spend more time focusing on the sins of others than dealing with our own sin. Everyone matters. I, I could start listing off the types of people I want to see sitting in the pews in our church because I want them to come and I want them to wrestle with the truth of God's Word and watch as God's Word transforms them. Nothing I say to them will transform them. Not a thing. There is not enough power in my voice to transform a heart or a life. The only thing that can do that is a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. The only thing that's going to convict them of their sin is the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Not me beating them over the head with the Word of God. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities at Pithom and Ramses, which a lot of times people just call it Ramses. That's a misinterpretation. Because, and Spellcheck tried to correct me multiple times on this. Ramses is a place, Ramses is a person. And Ramses is actually about 16 people, but we won't get into the roots. Like I said, I could chase a lot of rabbits because I've studied Egyptian history. Pithom means a city of justice. And Ramses means a child of the sun. Is that a big deal to us? Not really, but it matters for one purpose only, that these cities had a name and there are archaeological sites in what's known as <clears throat> Lower Egypt. Now, if I talk about Lower Egypt, this is the geography teacher in me, i got to help you out. Lower Egypt is actually closer to the Mediterranean. Okay, lower, to go Lower Egypt, you have to go north. 
which makes no sense at all. These Egyptians are weird people other than the Nile River flows that way. So Lower Egypt is in the north. The land of Goshen is in Lower Egypt. If you're to go to Upper Egypt, you're going south towards the desert. But, or another desert, because Egypt's surrounded by deserts. So that can be tricky too. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. This sounds like unruly children. The, I mean, sorry, chase that rabbit. Anyways, the more they spread abroad. So the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work of the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Okay, uh, this is a complete sidebar, but take it for what you will. If you go back into Genesis, what was the brand new technology that people developed at Babel? The brick. One generation's technology becomes the slave work of another generation. And sure, there's multiple generations down the line here, but what what is the slave work? What is holding their... Holding them in captivity is the work of making bricks. One generation's technology will enslave another. I'm not picking on my cell phone this morning or the TV that's not working, but yeah, okay, yes I am. Okay. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if, it's a, if it is a daughter, she shall live. I don't like Pharaoh. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to pull any punches. I don't like Pharaoh, and they try and make Pharaoh too likable in all the movies. Okay, there, there's not a... Pharaoh historically looking at the deeds of Pharaohs that is not a scumbag. Okay, and we we can say the same about a lot of politicians. We won't go there either. But this guy is literally telling these nurses to kill babies. If it's born a boy, kill it. Sifra means fair. Pua means splendid. Okay, if you're looking for new names for your children, you know, fair and splendid. Uh, Shifra and Pua. I'm glad we skipped over those, aren't you, Jovi? But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? Why... Why have you done this and let the male children live? I love this. These are absolutely descendants of Jacob. Listen to this answer. Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife even comes to them. You know, you Egyptian women spend hours in labor. The Hebrew women hit the easy button. Whoa, that was done. And Pharaoh is I guess dumb enough to believe it. I'm not giving this dude a lot of credit at all. 
if you're going to believe that some women, a whole nation of women are so vigorous that when they start to go into labor, they give birth before the midwife gets there. Yeah. Okay, I guess it's fair. A friend of mine had her kid walking in the hospital right at the vending machines. So maybe it's true. The word God in that moment, we need to pay attention to God's name throughout Scripture. And if you're not in the habit of doing that, that, that is a discipline or a practice that will change the way you read Scripture. Okay, right here, the word for God, where it says the Hebrew women feared God. And it's until I tell you it changes, this is how God is going to show up in Exodus for the first several parts until he talks to Moses. It is Elohim. And Elohim, we, we talked about a little bit in Genesis, how the translators said, well, you know, it means God Almighty. Well, Elohim also means a master or an authority. And it's going to change the way that we read some things later in Scripture when we realize that Elohim is not always a term that references God Almighty. And I'm giving you that now, tuck it away in your brain. We'll have to pull it out later. And God, or Elohim, dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, Elohim, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. Okay, I'm gonna, he's going to skip a level. Okay, These nurses aren't going to get it done. If you're Egyptian, any good citizen of Egypt, every son that is born to the Hebrews you will cast into the Nile but you will let every daughter live. Every male that is born, if you're a good citizen of Egypt, you're going to throw them in the river. That is a messed up individual. That, but that right there is going to be some of the essence of this whole story in Exodus and the struggle that we'll see in Moses' life that is the epitome of empire. Only an empire will command you to kill babies. Only an empire will condone the killing of babies for the sake of political control. Not going to chase that, but some of you know exactly where that's headed. This is where it gets interesting to me. In Exodus chapter 2, this is where suddenly they stop giving names. Now, a man from the house of Levi, a man from the house of Levi, we don't get his name, went and took his wife, also does not get us a name, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. What's missing there? She didn't name him. We're not given a name for this child. She didn't name him. And we don't ever catch it in Scripture. And again, who's authoring this? According to history and tradition, Moses is the guy writing this. Moses does not give us the name of his Hebrew mother and father 
And He doesn't give us His Hebrew name. And th that, this one that I, you can struggle right there with me because I can't figure that one out. Why? Why do we not get that? When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and then daubed it with bitumen and pitch, which is like uh, a sap and a tar. It's a waterproofing, uh, natural waterproofing material. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds in a riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. At this point in the story, we don't get the sister's name either. Chapter 1, we're all about names. Chapter 2, we're going to focus in on one name. Now the daughter of Pharaoh, who also does not get a name, came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And she opened it and saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now, got to go back to Genesis. How does she know this is a Hebrew baby? Because he bore the mark of the covenant, which was circumcision. Not a practice in Egypt. And Pharaoh's daughter is not a very good, obedient daughter because she is a citizen of Egypt. What should she have done with this baby? Tossed him in the river. But Pharaoh's daughter is above the law. <laughs> the one person who could rescue this baby is who the baby came to. The Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, who still has no name. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because I drew him out of the water. And Moses' name is right there. Moses' name means to be drawn out. Now, Moses is the only character that's going to be named throughout this whole chapter until we get down to Moses' family that he's going to get into. And, and I wondered why that was until when you look at it, who are you supposed to look at in this chapter? Moses. The whole purpose of it is to look at Moses and, and start to get the roots of who this man is and, and why we're going to struggle. Why Moses is going to struggle. Just like in Genesis where I said, I'm going to point out to you how these were everyday people. Moses is everyday people. We, we like to make him so much greater than he was, but Moses is going to get it wrong a lot. And we'll see that on the way. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. Moses knew the Israelites were his people. And he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Okay? He's identifying as a Hebrew. 
He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He, if you want the the term for this, this is cold-blooded murder. This is not an act of self-defense gone wrong. This is, he looked around, which is premeditation. He murdered this guy, and then he tried to hide him in the sand. Okay, one of the other marks of empire is that they get their way through force. Force and violence are the methods of empire. Where was Moses raised? He was raised in the house of the empire. How else would he know how to efficiently kill a person? Anyways, moving on. He went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Thus showing us Moses knows right from wrong. Because he told the guy that's in the wrong, why are you hitting your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me like you did the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid for surely the thing was known. Okay, again, the Hebrews are already identifying him as a judge, as a prince, and as a man who would potentially kill to settle the score. Not a, is this the guy you're going to pick to lead him out? <laughs> I mean, wow. Moses' struggle with his identity begins. Because while he knows his flesh and blood are Hebrew, every part of his actions identify as Egyptian. The way he acts and reacts to things is Egyptian. First time in scripture, we're going to see a man with an identity crisis. And, and I struggle with nailing it down. Is this imposter syndrome that he deals with like a lot of us do? Well, I can't share the gospel because I, I'm not so-and-so. I'm not eloquent with words. I'm not. And we're going to see evidence of that show up over and over. But I, I really believe the heart of it is, is Moses is torn between knowing his bloodline, his education and his raising, and trying to become who God's going to call him to be. And we're going to watch that through the life of Moses as we go through the Exodus. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled troughs to water their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them. How do you suppose that went down? That Moses just said, hey guys, knock it off? Or did Moses resort to what he knew, violence, and you know, you beat up a shepherd or two, the other's going to run off pretty quick. Because most shepherds are young teenage boys at that time. Now, if you go to the Middle East, most shepherds are teenage girls. Kind of interesting factoid there, but anyways, like I said, rabbits, lots of them. The land of Midian means strife. So Moses leaves the comfort of the palace and moves to a land that is called strife. How wild is that? 
these daughters, they came home to their father, Ruel. And he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. This tells me that Ruel is in the heritage of the same family line that Abraham came from. Because first thought is hospitality. I'm going to be hospitable to the man who saved my daughters. Doesn't matter that he's an Egyptian. Which we know he's not an Egyptian. He's a Hebrew. Posing as an Egyptian. This is going to get crazy before it's over. Raul, a.k.a. Jethro, his name means friend of God. Okay, if you're looking for another name, you know, name for a boy, Jethro. Also a really cool character on NCIS, but that's, a, that's another story. <clears throat> and Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Okay, don't get hung up on that, teenage girls. Arranged marriages are the norm in this part of the Bible. Okay, you could trust your parents to find you a winner. We just don't in America. We make you find your own. And he gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. There's another name for a boy. Gershom, for I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Zipporah's name means bird, and Gershom means foreigner. We, we end the chapter again with people being named, where we're getting names, where we got names in the first chapter, we're getting names at the end of the second chapter. You know, God's bringing the emphasis back off of Moses and back on to making sure that we understand names matter. Why do names matter so much? When people ask you who you are, what do you, what do you do first? You introduce yourself by your name. It's the first piece of identity that we have is our name. We work really hard to make sure that babies know what? Their name. It's the same way with pets. We do the same thing with pets. We try to get our dog to know his name so that when we call his name, he comes to us. Okay, Names are a big deal. Up until this point, how many names for God do we have? This is where you let everybody just stew a minute because they're having to review all of Genesis. How many names do we have for God? Two. Two, and they're actually the same name. The other one's just a description of the first one. The name that we have for God I already gave you today. Elohim. Elohim. The, the addition to it is, is the, um, the, the word that's not a word, Shaddai. We shorten it to El Shaddai. But he is actually Elohim Shaddai. And Shaddai is not a word as we talked about in Genesis. It's a group of words that means the one who knows when to say it's enough. So the almighty God who knows when, it's, when to say enough. So he's all powerful and, 
And that is all that Abraham knew him as. That's all that Jacob or Isaac and Jacob knew him as. And God's about to flip the script on Moses. Because God doesn't want to just be known as this all-powerful being. Because if, if he's an all-powerful being, will people fear him or worship him? And that's the question we have to ask ourselves as we wrap it up today. Do we, do we fear God or do we worship him? Because there's people who say, well, you have to do both. No, that's garbage. Because if you're spending your time being afraid, then you have put God into a category he never wanted himself to be in. He wanted you to recognize that he is the creator, that he told the oceans as far as they could come to the shore. He told the land as high as it could reach to the heavens. He told the sun when it would shine and when it would go to the other side of the earth so you would have night. He separated all those things. But he never meant for that to drive fear into the hearts of men. Because if you're afraid, you're never going to love and worship because God's going to reveal himself as the God who is a heavenly father who wants your love and your worship, not your fear. Because if you can be made afraid of something, you're only going to be afraid of it until you're made to be afraid of something else. Every other religion in the ancient world was based on fear. We have to sacrifice to the gods because we're afraid that they won't perform to our expectations. That they, we have to sacrifice to the Nile in Egypt because if we don't, it might not flood, which is not really a concern in Egypt. They started worshiping the sun more than the river because the river was pretty consistent. That's the only way you get 100 plus feet of topsoil off the flood. Okay, so that was a bad example. They worshiped the sun because you got to have the right amount of sun to get crops to grow. So Ra became a predominant god. And then a bunch of other gods because, and we'll get to all of them. Or most of them. I mean, there's thousands of them. But God, I've always been taught God was in a showdown with the Egyptian gods. And, and I don't necessarily believe that anymore. Because God was simply trying to prove who he is not to show that the other gods the the other gods are going to be as real as people make them to be that that's a statement you won't hear in a lot of places the the only other gods in your life are as real as you make them to be and there's a spirit behind every false god there really is and, and it's usually driven out of our flesh and our selfishness but we don't want to chase that rabbit. The heart of the story is identity. How many of you have looked at Exodus and said, hey, that's a story on identity? What's your identity? What is your identity? When people ask you about the God you serve, how do you identify him? 
and the question, I'm going to leave you with more questions and answers today, and I hope that's okay. But you have fun with this one. I, I gave this question to Denise driving down the road, coming back from Colorado. If your God, step into his position for a minute, you're the almighty God who exists outside of time. How are you going to identify or name yourself for your chosen people? What name are you going to give yourself so they know who to call on and how to identify you? This is why he's God and we're not. Because, I mean, I hurt my brain trying to come up with how I would do that. And God is about to reveal his identity to Moses, to Pharaoh, and to the children of Israel. And I want you to understand that not everyone is going to view God through the same lens. And that's the trouble we deal with as Christians today when we try and share the gospel is we're trying to tell them about a good and a loving God through our lens when they may have been hurt by the church in the past, they may have been you know, raised a devout atheist to only believe in science. You know, we have to learn, and along the way, maybe we'll see the truth about it, that God will help us to reveal himself to them through their lens. Because the way he reveals himself to Moses is not the way he reveals himself to Pharaoh. And it's absolutely not the way he reveals himself to the children of Israel at large. I'm glad God knew exactly the moment in my life that I needed to meet Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Because I knew all about him. I had all the head knowledge. But the head knowledge didn't mean diddly squat. I would have been just like Lucifer himself. I'd have been like the devil. I'd get cast into the lake of fire on judgment day because I knew all about God. I knew all the scriptures. But I didn't know him. And he made himself real. And we're going to get to see that happen to Moses. Heavenly Father, thank you for today.